Well, let's take our Bibles, brothers and sisters, and let's open them to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This has been such a rich exposition of the Gospel of Luke, and we are here in the passion of Christ as he is about to to give his life on the cross. Our passage this morning is Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. So follow along with me as I read. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Father God, as we, as we see here the passion of our Savior, even before his trial, even before going to the cross, we see him here as our burden bearer. We see him here sweating great drops of blood in this time of prayer. As we come to this text, Lord, guide our minds and hearts. I know, Lord, in the sound of my voice in this room this very moment, there are some here bearing incredibly weighty burdens. Burdens of sorrow and loss. Burdens of family difficulty and strife. Burdens of, Lord, just, just emptiness and apathy. Lord, you know and understand us all. You are not a God who is far off. Lord, you are a Savior who has lived in this world, who has borne such burdens, who has borne all the burdens of those who trust in you. And so let us draw near in our study of the text and behold, Lord, and, and be deepened in our love for Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, as I just prayed in my prayer, are you perhaps in one of those difficult seasons of life? Are you on the eve of something that's incredibly painful or hard? If not, have you been in that place before? Have you been in a place where, you know, it was hard to get to sleep? Your stomach was tied in knots. The anxiousness of your circumstances was inescapable. There were things bearing down on you or things coming at you that almost felt like a a freight train that was about to, to smash and destroy you. Maybe it was a doctor's appointment where you were going to get a diagnosis that you feared. Maybe it was a life altering surgery 
Maybe it was a day in court when a verdict was coming. Maybe it was a day you knew you were going to be let go from your job. Maybe it was a funeral of your spouse, your child. You know, when we as Christians are faced with such incredible difficulty and pain, there's always that temptation to despair, to depend upon ourselves, to turn to other worldly avenues to cope or to deaden our fear and our pain. But the reality is that for us as believers, there's only one true and lasting comfort. There's only one sure and certain peace. And that is exactly what Jesus models for us in this passage. When he was standing on the cusp of bearing both the wrath of man and the wrath of God for sinners more than anything, he wanted time with his father in prayer. So let's go ahead and walk through this text this morning as we consider first the son's earnest prayer. The son's earnest prayer. Again, after observing Passover with his disciples, after instituting for them the Lord's Supper, after instructing the disciples on some very weighty matters, Jesus and his men left the upper room and they departed for the Mount of Olives, which was a hillside grove just outside of Jerusalem. You can even visit there in Israel today. When it says in verse 39 that this was his custom, it means that it was the place that Jesus and his disciples often went to relax and pray after times of ministry. John 18.2 tells us that Jesus had often met there with his disciples, and this is why Judas knew that he would be able to find Jesus and the disciples there a little later in the evening. When they arrived, we see when they came to the place, Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what temptation? Well, remember that Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to betray them, and now Judas was nowhere to be found. He had just warned Peter in front of everyone that Peter was going to deny him three times before the night was over. He had just told them that ministry was now going to look a lot different for them because now the whole world would be against them. So the temptation was to not remain faithful. The temptation was to shrink back from their call to discipleship when they were faced with suffering. The temptation was to not be dependent upon the Lord in what they were about to endure. And so as the the parallel words in Matthew's account say, they needed to watch and pray. Verse 41 tells us that Jesus went a little beyond them, a stone's throw from them, and he knelt down and began to pray. And Matthew 26, 39 tells us that he went from kneeling to being even down on his face, which was a posture of complete submission and need before the Father. And he prayed, look at verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Yet not what I will, not my will, but yours be done. This was an intensely personal and intimate request, but it begs the question that we're all thinking right now, what in the world did Jesus mean by this? Well, the cup is the biblical reference to God's judgment and wrath. We see that used often, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 49. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. And so in this context, it represents the cup of sufferings that Jesus would have to endure on the cross. God's infinite righteous wrath and fury for all of the sins of of his people that would be poured out on Jesus as he died in the sinner's place. With the weight of that divine wrath and all those anticipated sorrows bearing down upon him, Jesus prayed, if you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. Now, that 
the, the question is, was Jesus trying to back out of his mission at the last minute? Was he wavering in his commitment somehow to redeem mankind? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus knew that he could have walked away from death any time he desired. Remember that. Jesus could have walked away from this at any moment he desired. Even as his arrest was imminent, he could have also called down a legion of angels to slaughter those who were coming to arrest him. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, verse 17 and 18. I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So if that's true, what was Jesus really praying here in the garden? Well, I think one commentator explained it well. He said, the Father sent the Son to the cross, but he did not force him to go. Jesus was here asking if avoiding the cross were possible within the Father's redemptive plan and purpose. The agony of becoming sin was becoming unendurable for the sinless Son of God. And so he wondered aloud before his Father if there could be another way to deliver men from their sin. This question of there being another way besides the cross was due to his humanity, the weakness of his humanity. Remember what we've discussed earlier, even as we think about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures. He is fully God and fully man. His humanity and divinity are inconfusedly unified. And so in these hours before the cross, we see the struggle. In these hours before the cross, we see both the frailties of his humanity and the omnipotence of his deity. We see the fear and frailty of his human side. And that is the source of this question. What is amazing is that even in the face of such torture and death, Jesus was still resolved. He wondered aloud if there could be another way to accomplish the redemption of mankind, and yet ultimately, He was submitted to his Father's will. Go back to verse 42. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Brothers and sisters, this episode in the garden, I think, is one of the chief events that the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Did you hear that in Hebrews 5? In his humanity, Jesus learned obedience. In his humanity, Jesus learned. And he proved here in the garden beyond any doubt that he was ultimately submitted to his Father's will. Regarding the last phrase, not my will but yours be done, Charles Spurgeon said the following. He said, this was the vital part of his petition. It's true essence. For as much as his human nature shrank from the cup of his sufferings, still more did he shrink from any thought of acting contrary to his Father's will. Christ's sense of sonship was clear and undimmed even in this darkest hour. When faced with his greatest test, 
Jesus perfectly submitted himself to the will of the Father. And I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, that this is where the battle was fought and won in the mind of Christ. His earthly ministry began with being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And here near the end of his earthly ministry, he was tested again in the garden. But by trusting his father and submitting to his father's will, he overcame both. The battle was won. After this time of prayer in the garden, Jesus never looked back. He never questioned the cup of sufferings again. He moved forward with a perfect resolve to complete his Father's will, to complete the work of redemption, to give himself as our Savior. Now as we pause and we think about this first point, this is where I want to drive this home to us a little bit. Again, if we are not now, we have... And all of us will again face incredible times of trial in this life. We will be faced with immense hardship and suffering. We will be faced with loneliness and despair. We will have times where we ourselves question God. God, why is this happening? Why now? Lord, I think of all these things I had planned, all these things that, 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 that we had talked about, all these things that we had anticipated. Why, God? I want you to understand. Jesus, under, Jesus knows. Jesus knows the burden you are feeling. He knows the loneliness you are facing. He knows what it is to walk in the aftermath of the trial and the suffering and the season you've been through. He knows. He himself learned obedience through his sufferings. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this is where he means for us to learn as well. Do you understand that every single circumstance that you have walked through, are walking through, has been ordained for you? And I heard this again recently, and I say it to you, and we even heard Robert, as he preached a few weeks ago, say something similar to this, but this is actually a quote of Tim Keller's. You know, Tim Keller rightly said at one point when he was teaching, do you know that if you knew everything God knew, you would pray for exactly the circumstances he has you in right now? If you knew everything that God knew, you would pray for exactly the circumstances you are in right now. It's not a mistake. The times of your trial and struggle are no accident. And Christ means for you to know Him and love Him and see Him as your burden bearer during these times of trial and struggle in a way that you would have never before apart from. This is where we learn who he is and how sufficient he is and how wondrous he is and how he is our perfect burden bearer. In the end, we too, we find ourselves asking questions. We find ourselves in the midst of the struggle. But also in the end, brothers and sisters, we must understand that we have Christ in us so that in Christ we too are able to say, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Christ empowers us to that very same heart. That takes me to my second point, the son's severe agony. The son's severe agony. We pick up at verse 43 in our text. It says there, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. 
You know, as we, as we think about the word Gethsemane, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It means olive press. What that means is that this particular olive grove had its own press. A press was a great big carved stone receptacle into which all the olives from the grove would be dumped. And then large, heavy, round stones would be rolled around on top of those olives, pressing, pressing out the precious oil. You know, there's a sovereign symbolism in the fact that our Lord was pressed so severely in his spirit in this place. As we pick up with verse 43, we see how lovingly the Father in heaven responded to Jesus' earnest prayer. He sent an angel from heaven to strengthen his son for what was about to happen. Imagine that comfort, right? I mean, we, we've all, again, probably experienced some measure of comfort from someone who loved us. You know, when we've had those times of trials, how much it meant just to have someone to hug us, just to have someone bring us a meal, just to have someone encourage us with a word of Scripture. We know what it's like to have that kind of comfort. But can you imagine what kind of comfort an angel from the very presence of God could bring? The, the angels in heaven surround God's throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now one of their number had come from the Father's side to strengthen the Holy Son, to refresh his spirit, to remind him of the joy that was set before him. Yes, Jesus would have to endure the cross, despising the shame, dying in our place as the atoning sacrifice. But in the end, salvation would be accomplished, death would be defeated, and he would be seated again at the right hand of the throne of God. The angel was there to strengthen his spirit with these truths and to refresh his body for the trials ahead. But even with the blessing of that angelic comfort, look at what verse 44 says. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Agony is an intense word there in the Greek. It literally means intense mental, emotional, and physical anguish. If we look in the parallel passage in Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus even has said to his disciples, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. But, but look, did, did his sorrow, did his agony drive him away from God? No. It drove him to pray. His passion had begun. The sorrows of the suffering servant were now upon him like great billows of a, of a very fierce storm. He was under so much pressure and so much stress, stress that the capillaries, this is an actual physical condition, you can be under so much stress that the capillaries underneath the pores of your skin begin to burst and your pores begin to fill with blood. And so his pores and his skin that was happening, they burst, they dilated, and blood fell with his sweat to the ground. He was probably under so much strain that he might have even wondered if his humanity could bear the awful struggle that he was about to endure. And yet once again, he knew this was his father's will. It would be accomplished. And he prayed even more earnestly. Now I want you to think about this. Why, why was Jesus under so much stress? Why was he so anguished? What was composing this burden of sorrow? I mean, just think about it. There's numerous reasons. I mean, there's 10 I can think of right off the bat. First of all, he had been rejected by his own people Israel. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
He was, secondly, he was about to be betrayed by Judas. One of his own men, one of his own disciples that had been with him for over three years was about to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was also, number three, about to be abandoned by his men. These men that had been with him, that had proclaimed their loyalty to him, they were about to be scattered. Number four, he knew he was facing the denial and cursing of Peter. Here was Peter, the rock. And Peter, the rock, was about to melt like a piece of you know, rock in a volcano, like lava. He was about not only to deny Christ, but to curse in the process. Number five, Jesus was about to suffer injustice at the hands of the religious leaders. These men who were the leaders of his people who had the scriptures were about to be the ones who murdered him. He was also about to suffer intense torture and humiliation. Before he ever got to the cross, he was going to be spit upon, mocked, beaten, and scourged. That means to have the skin flayed off his body like a, by a whip. Number seven, he would face through this the temptations of Satan. Again, Satan was actively at work. He had already entered Judas. It was Satan that was going to have control as Peter would deny Christ. And Jesus was going to be up against that constant temptation. Number eight, Jesus was going to know sin for the first and only time in his life. Think about that. Jesus had walked his entire life on earth among sinful men, but he had never once, not even in his thoughts, did he ever once sin. And yet he was just hours away from bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Number nine, Jesus was also about to know death for the first and only time in his life. The eternally existent Son of God would die a sinner's death in the sinner's place. And number 10, and this is most horrendous of all, because he had to become sin on our behalf, he would be temporarily forsaken by his Father on the cross. Think about that. Throughout the entire existence of the Godhead, which is eternal, no beginning and no end, Jesus had known perfect, intimate fellowship with his father. But on Friday afternoon, as he would hang on the tree, bearing the sins of humanity, the father would turn his face away. Jesus would scream out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the only time in his entire existence, instead of being the object of his father's love, Jesus would become the object of his father's wrath. These were all of the terrifying realities that were bearing down on Christ during these hours of the gar in the garden. The weight of all these things was all but crushing his humanity. These grievous realities surrounded him every way he turned, and that is why his soul was in agony, and that is especially why he needed the presence of his Father in prayer. I say to us again, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows and understands the weights and the sorrows that we struggle with. Those weights and sorrows in our marriages, those weights and sorrows in our singleness, those weights and sorrows in our parenting, those weights and sorrows in our battles against sin that we lose, the weights and sorrows of our losses, that loss of a parent, that loss of a spouse, that loss of a child. He knows And he is a savior who's perfectly suited to bear those sorrows with you and for you.
understand Jesus doesn't, doesn't stand afar off and, and let you languish in your agony. He comes alongside and he lifts you and he bears it with you. He often doesn't take it away. Understand that. We pray for that. And, and there are some times where he does take it away. But often Jesus doesn't take away that weight. He comes alongside us and he bears it with us and he bears it for us so that we discover his strength and his mercy and his grace in ways that we would have never known before. He knows our sorrows, and he is our substitute. Do you know that? Of all the weights that you have to bear in this life, of all the trials that you and I have to suffer, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing we will never have to bear is the wrath of God, because he has borne it for us. The worst weight that you could ever imagine you have been spared from because Jesus, Jesus bore it for you on the cross. And that is why we have joy in the midst of our trials, brothers and sisters. Because he is our substitute. He is our savior. He is the one who is a source of our adoption as his very own children. And so we can trust in him. Before I leave this point, though, I would say this. If you are without Christ, this is not true for you. If you are without Christ, there is a wrath that is to come that is far beyond anything you can even begin to comprehend. An infinite wrath of God that will be poured out upon all sinners in hell. Hell is a place where God is present, make no mistake, but he is, he is only present in his wrath and indignation, in his power and justice. Hell is a place where you are absent of any of the mercy or grace or love of Christ. And I say that to you for you to consider your own soul and for you to consider the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ your Lord. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus and be saved. Believe that the life he lived, the perfect life he lived, he lived for you. Believe that the death he died in a place was in your place. Believe that when he rose from the grave, he rose to give life for you. That's what it means to trust him, to believe him, and to be saved. This very day, won't you consider? Won't you weigh? Won't you understand that Christ is your only escape from the wrath, of, wrath to come? Christ is your only hope of eternal life. So turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That takes me to my third point. The disciples' great weakness. The disciples' great weakness as Jesus writhed in anguish over the cup of his sufferings. What were his disciples doing? They were sleeping. Again, it had been a very eventful evening for them. Jesus had taught his last lessons to his men. He washed their feet as an example of service to them. He had instituted the Lord's Supper for them. He told them it's some heavy things that one would betray him, that Peter would deny him. They had heard a lot. They had, they had experienced a lot. And, and we see in the text this mention of sorrow. We were, it's not explained to us, but there was some sense of sorrow that hung over them. So what were they doing? Here they were, now very late at night, in the garden with full stomachs, sleeping. Sleeping when Jesus told them to watch and pray. 
We would have thought they'd be vigilant soldiers, right? The revelations of that evening should have made them somber and and alert and grave in a very serious fashion. They should have been led to cry out to the Lord in despair. You know, we need you, Lord. But they failed on all accounts. But here we see the beauty of our Savior again. Even though Jesus was in agony, Jesus didn't react in a harsh or wrathful way towards them like, like I would, you know? I, you know, as, as a parent, I, I've, I've, I have failed so many times as a parent. And, you know, when I've been, you know, had a particularly busy week or hard week or I'm stressed or I'm crushed, how easy it is for me as a father when my kids aren't doing what I want them to do to just come in and, and just, why aren't you doing what I told you to do, right? That was not the heart of Christ. Jesus came to them and he said, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That simple, that profound, that loving. They needed to watch. They needed to be on guard. They needed to be strengthened by prayer, especially Peter. Again, Peter had just been told by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. Of all the men, Peter should have been the one pleading with God in this moment, but he wasn't. Brothers and sisters, I confess to you, I'm, I'm too often like Peter. You know, when I'm stressed, sometimes I just feel like I'd rather sleep when I really need to pray. One commentator said that what we see in this text is, is basically the pattern and sequence of spiritual tragedy. This commentator noted that spiritual tragedy comes in five steps. First of all, it begins with self-confidence. This is what we saw with Peter when Jesus predicted his denials last week. And it's reflected in the lives of the disciples here in this text. Wherever they were at, they sure didn't feel the need to seek God and depend upon God in this moment. They were given over to sleep. So it begins with self-confidence. Secondly, it continues with spiritual indifference. We think that sin and evil are no big deal. And rather than acknowledging that we are engaged in a spiritual battle against real forces of darkness and against the vileness of our own flesh, we, 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 we effectively just kind of put it out of our minds and, and we're given over to really a sense of apathy. We're, we're asleep at the spiritual wheel of our lives, just as the disciples were asleep in the garden. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, spiritual indifference is most characterized by a lack of prayer. Spiritual indifference is most characterized by a lack of prayer. We don't pray anymore because we don't sense a need to pray. And that leads to step three. It leads to temptation. Self-confidence and spiritual indifference always open the door to temptation. Our flesh is weak. Satan is a cunning adversary. He knows our besetting sins, and he is tireless in his onslaughts. So our lack of prayer represents a lack of dependence upon God. And when we are self-dependent, that is Satan's greatest opportunity to strike. When you think that you can stand on your own, you are right where Satan wants you to be. Be sober-minded, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. This is a man who knows, right? Peter knows. He denied Christ. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then temptation, step four, gives way to sin. When we fail to commune with Christ in the word and in prayer, we fail to properly equip ourselves, we fail to put on the armor of God, and then when the enemy attacks, we are led away as prisoners. 
And that five results in spiritual tragedy. In the case of the disciples, the tragedy or the disaster was their falling away for a time from their Lord. In our lives, it could also mean us falling away for a time, backsliding, running from God. It could mean the ruin of a marriage. It could mean the loss of a job. It could mean the downfall of a ministry. It could mean a host of bad consequences. We must watch and pray. Too much is at stake in our lives and especially for the gospel. We must watch and pray. We must be vigilant. I think a great biblical illustration of this comes from the book of Nehemiah. Remember when in Nehemiah, when the people had been brought back into the land and they wanted to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and they were being attacked by the people around them? What did they do when they had to go out and build the wall? What did Nehemiah tell them to do? He said, listen, you have a trowel to build the wall in one hand and you have a sword in the other. That's how we're going to do it. They had to be steadfast and alert, and even as they labored, they had to be ready to enter into battle at a moment's notice. Brothers and sisters, we have to be ready to fight. You know what the good news is? It's not our fight. It's the fight of our Lord, and he already has won it. In Christ, what does Romans 8 say? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The good news is we are in a battle, but the battle is not ours to win. Christ has already won it. We are in a battle, but we don't even depend upon our own strength and our own armor and our own skill and our own ability to protect ourselves. Jesus gives us the armor. Jesus gives us the strength. Jesus fights before us, around us, and at our side in every way. He is the warrior. And so we pray. Thomas Boston was one of the Scottish Covenanters. He lived in the late 16th and early 1700s, and he wrote a book called An Illustration of the Doctrines of Christian Religion. And in that book, he said the following. He said, praying without watching is a tempting of God. Watching without praying is a contempt of God and his grace. There is need to watch, for our enemies are ever lying at the catch. And there is need to pray, for watch as we will, our enemies are too strong for us if the Lord himself does not second us. We must have new supplies of grace from the grace of Jesus Christ if we would stand. If there's anything I could bring us this morning, brothers and sisters, it is this. The weakness of the disciples is our weakness. The need of the disciples is our need. And our weakness and our need are satisfied perfectly in Jesus Christ. He is all in all. I would even go back to what I preached last week. You remember when he's telling Peter, you're going to deny me three times? And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, not me. What did Jesus say to him? Peter, Satan's, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. He wanted all the disciples, remember? But what did Jesus say to Peter? But I have prayed for you. For you, Peter. Do you understand where you are right now in the trial you are facing, in the heartache you bear, in the struggle that you are having? You have a warrior Savior who's praying for you, who's interceding for you, who's giving himself 
for you. In all your lack, in all your insufficiency, in all your failure, he succeeds. He is sufficient. He is strong. He stands in your stead as the righteous one who will, if you are Christ, he will present you before his Father complete in perfection, in glory. So our weakness is the disciple's weakness. Our frailty is the disciple's frailty. Our need is the disciple's need. And Christ is all in all. So dear brother or sister, do not be downcast. Do not be crushed by what you are going through. This is why Charles Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. That's because of the glory of Christ. Amen. This Christ who intercedes for us, who is our Savior, is the same Christ that bids us come. You know, this, this, this table, this ordinance, we began this morning with the ordinance of baptism, the beauty of that. It's a one-time ordinance. It's meant to be once to show our public identity, identification with the body of Christ. But this ordinance is continual. And this ordinance, brothers and sisters, is meant to be something that strengthens us. When you are weak, it is here. We are reminded again that our Savior says, come and partake of me. Come and be nourished by me. Come and depend upon me. This is a reminder that we are secure in the most important thing in the universe, and that is our salvation. That we are upheld by the most important person in the universe, and that is our Lord. And that though every other, every other thing that lifts us, everything else that supports us, though every other earthly foundation and support may be taken from us, if we are truly in Christ, we can never be lost to him. And so, brothers and sisters, come and be strengthened by his table this morning. Be reminded that it is Christ who nourishes. It is Christ who strengthens. It is Christ who is with you. It is Christ whom you sup upon for your well-being. This is just for believers. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, we want you to understand this is not for you. Paul had to warn the Corinthian church. There were those that partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That means that without a heart of faith, and they ate and drank judgment to themselves. Do not do that. And parents, if you have young people with you, have not yet come to that place of saving faith, and identification with the church, please allow, help them to allow these elements to pass by. To our young people, we pray for you. We look forward to the day when you will join us at the supper. We pray for your salvation. And even as we partake of this, we challenge you, look to Christ, consider your own heart, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But if you're a believer here today, even a struggling believer, even if you feel like you're a failing believer, that, that you've been in battle with your flesh and the world and the devil this week, and you've stunk at it, that you've lost those battles, look to Christ in faith, turn from that sin, and be strengthened 
by coming to his presence. You don't have to be perfect to come to the table. Christ has been perfect for you. And it is by his perfection that you are welcome at his table. Let us take a few moments and prepare our hearts now as our table servants come. Table servants, please come.